welcome to the Delling Pop with me, James Delling Pop. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am because this week's special guest is Tom Winifrith. And Tom and I share lots of interests. And also, Tom is related to somebody very, very special to me. Tom is the nephew of the late, great, magnificent Christopher Booker. What a great uncle to have, Tom. An uncle and a godfather, yeah. And uh, he, uh, be, one of the things that you know, and one of the things that I know, is that when you wrote a piece, uh, he would give you enormous credit for it. He was a far better journalist than I am, or than you are, uh, but he would give you Steady. credit when you, when, when you did something good. Um, and he would show a real interest in it. Yes, he was. He was certainly to me, he was a, I used to call him my honorary dad. I mean, he was definitely, he was definitely my second dad. And we used to talk several times a week. I mean, the booker used to, used to ring and, and no, no matter how inconvenient the time, one would always lay aside an hour because the conversations went on quite a long time for one of his rambling yet fascinating chats on any subject under the sun they'd start they'd start start usually about something that annoying that happened in the field of the uh enviro nazi lunacy and then we'd progress from there to all skitter off in all sorts of directions uh and i imagine we, you had the same experience we had exactly the same things we had we had a lot in common uh, uh both sort of multiple divorces uh both the great love of the marnie in greece which is where he went on his first honeymoon um, with uh, Emma Tennant uh, and uh, a friend, uh, Emma's cousin and her boyfriend. And within a few months, they got back. Emma was shacked up with her cousin's boyfriend and Uncle Chris was on divorce number one. But he had a great love of the Marnie, which is where I have rebuilt a, uh, uh, notwithstanding that episode, I've rebuilt a, a hovel in the mountains and turned it into an eco palace. And so we'd have long conversations about Greece uh, and about how, well, one day we would walk up Mount Tagessus together. Notwithstanding the fact that we were both terrified of heights. Uh, and my great uncle on my other side actually died falling down a mountain in Greece. But we were going to do it. Uh, and we would, yes, we would talk about everything. In his latter years, we disagreed a little bit uh, on Brexit. Uh, I yes. am a very hard line Brexit. Uh, uh, we used to joke that he had become a Ramona and he would get a bit cross about that. So actually we decided because Uncle Chris did fall out with various people, we weren't going to fall out. So if it ever got onto Brexit, we would just say, can we just agree that Theresa May is utterly useless? And we could agree on that. <laughs> I mean, no one, probably even Mr May agrees with us on that one. And so we just move on to something which we could agree on. Yeah. I had exactly the same period. The, the, there came a point where he and his sort of um, co-author, Richard North, uh, went in one particular direction on, on, on Brexit. And I don't like to talk about Brexit, by the way. I mean, I, I almost never talk about it because I just think it's just completely irrelevant now. But that's by the by. I mean, given we're talking about, about biography rather than anything else. Um, there was definitely a point where I realized that if I wanted my friendship with Christopher to continue, and I did very, very much, I valued him so greatly, then we were going to have to agree to differ on, on Brexit, which meant basically not talking about it. 
which was fine. It worked because there was so much else to talk about. Um, I mean, I miss him we, awfully. We did read on one other thing, which we also, which was Israel. Um, I'm a strong supporter of Israel. Uncle Chris, a little bit, um, a little bit weaker on that, uh, uh, on yeah. the subject of the one democracy in the Middle East. And again, we would, the, the one thing good, good thing about him is if I talk to most people about Israel, they talk about how Israel are next, you know, the free Palestinian lands. And they've got no idea of the history of the region. He did have the idea of the history of the region. And so you, you could have a, a discussion with him. But I was aware that I might just sort of be dancing on eggshells. And generally, we prefer to talk about things we could agree on, which was nearly everything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he had, um, he was, um, he was a hedgehog, wasn't he? Rather than a fox. Um, he, he knew one big thing as opposed to lots of little things. He, ha he had this grand overarching, overarching theory. Did he talk, he, he must've talked to you about this. No? No. no. Autolycus. Autolycus, um, the, the, the Greek, um, uh, was he a, a playwright or a, a, a poet? Autolycus came up with the, the fable of the, the fox and the hedgehog. And the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fox knows lots of little things. And then this was taken up by Isaiah Berlin in a famous essay in, I think he wrote in the 1950s, uh, where he sort of enlarged upon this. And anyway, this was one of, one of Booker's particular obsessions that when he, was, when he was about six or eight, I think the story changed according to the, when he was telling it, um, he was driving along in his, uh, with his mother in, uh, in a car and he remembers vividly thinking, I can understand, the, he didn't put it like this, obviously, because he was only six or eight, but I believe that there is a grand universal overarching theory which explains the world. And his life then became a quest to find out what that theory was. And he, he achieved it in, in, for example, his masterpiece, Seven Basic Plots but he also wrote about it in his book, The Neophiliacs. Um, anyway, he, he was a man of many parts. I didn't, know, I didn't know he had a fear of heights, for example, because one of the things that we kept promising we were going to do, and this is a lesson to us all, actually, um, we, ke we kept talking about we were gonna go and climb probably Mount Snowdon. We were gonna go to Snowdonia or somewhere similar, somewhere lofty where we could walk and of course, I thought he was going to live forever and be, uh, be, be hail forever. And, and of course, that doesn't happen. And that's what I mean about it being a terrible warning to us all. I've got a friend at the moment he, who's, who's got cancer. And I know that I should really seize the moment and just like talk to him and do lots of things with him because he'll be taken away like your father, was, uh, like, like Booker was taken away. Um, I never did go on that walk. Um, and it would have been interesting having him cowering at, uh, on the on the edges of the. He was good at that. He climbed. Uh, he cl climbed uh, whatever that mountain, Kilimanjaro, uh, with his sons. Uh, so he could climb mountains. He was just afraid of heights. Um, so when he was driving in Greece, he would often ask his wife to take the wheel when you're going on a particularly dangerous road. And I have the same feeling that there are roads, and it's opened up more with motorways now. But there were roads that I used to take and I would, at a certain juncture, 
uh, in roads in the Peloponnese. Uh, I'd be making a, a, a trip and I would always stop off and write my dad a postcard and post it to dad, uh, knowing that I was terrified of what was going to come. And thankfully, I always made it through. But uh, well, so far, that, that became a so far. Well, now there's motorways. Now Greece has opened up. It's uh, oh, have it's they been built different. by the Chinese by any chance? No, built built by the European Union. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, <laughs> almost as bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder. It's, I wonder. Uh, if... it's, it's, I mean, the, mo the motorways. I mean, this this is on my father's side. He studied a minority group in Greece, the minority language. And the motorways and the roads that have been built in my lifetime have destroyed that culture. Uh, and in one way, it's, it's one of those things. The people in these remote villages in northern Greece are delighted that they can, you can drive to them now and that they've all got televisions and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the kids can go off and live in Athens. But uh, I know my father and I talked about this a lot. It's terribly sad because even in my lifetime, these were villages you had to walk to for the last bit. And uh, the kids didn't leave home and the villages survived. And the language which my dad studied survived. And that language is being trashed by everyone watching Greek television. What, what is the language or was it? The language is called Vlak. And it's, uh, it's a, uh, 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 it's sort of, it, there are theories about where it comes from but it's, it's more Roman than Greek. So the black, the black word for man is barber. Um, and if you count in, in black, undau, trey, sinsi, shasi, shapto, octo, now, zaxt, that's far more uh, Latin than the Greek. Um, and the people live in Northern Greece, Albania, Southern, uh, what it was, Yugoslavia, uh, Romania, and, uh, so uh, I spent a lot of my childhood uh, going around to these villages where you had to walk to sometimes. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, is it, I mean, is, is it only spoken in the Marni, this language? No, no. Vlak is not spoken in the Marni. The Marni is, uh, uh, is, is Greek. Um, uh, but the Vlak is spoken in northern Greece, in the Pindus Mountains. Okay. Um, and uh, in, in Albania and Yugoslavia and Romania, okay. I think, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, so these people were nomadic. So the borders didn't actually mean anything 100 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could go off in so many, so many different directions. I mean, we could talk about, about uh, your, your, your travels and we talk about the book. Uh, uh, also, I, I, I want to talk a bit just because this is your, this is your this is kind of your job, isn't it? You run a website and I, I think an annual conference called Share Profits, with uh, a pun on the and word. No, no, wonderful, wonderfully good timing. Uh, we uh, I did a one-off video conference uh, last year. I used to run a uh, a physical conference, uh, but uh, uh, luckily uh, my wife, who uh, owned the shares, sold out to our business partner because physical conferences aren't really very good. Uh, my main thing is, yes, I, I write uh, on a financial website, Share Profits, which is largely behind a paywall, exposing fraud. I also write about uh, issues of liberty and uh, uh, the nonsense of sort of uh, the woke uh, uh, oppression on my own website, where I also write about living in Greece, 
and living, uh, as I do the rest of the time, uh, in Wales by 30 yards and uh, the joys of renovating a house from the 1600s, having renovated a hovel in Greece. I'm, I'm uh, assuming about that, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm assuming that those exposed beams are your, your 16th century house in Wales rather than um, a house in the Marnie. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. When we got here, those those beams which you see behind us were covered in plaster. Yeah. Um, and uh, they have we've unearthed them and we're just working room by room by room. And this part of the house is the oldest part of the house and is I haven't been able to date it exactly, but somewhere between 1650 and 1670. So presumably the ceiling was lower by the, um, the height of that beam um, before you exposed it. Uh, no, the beam was encased in plaster. Ah. Uh, the old, old the, the, the previous owners were very keen on hiding anything which looked uh, uh, remotely sort of uh, old. old. So we discovered we discovered uh, uh, in uh, the, the the main room uh, there was a truly horrific 1970s fireplace about uh, you know, two and a half foot high. And by knocking back the wall, we exposed uh, the original fireplace from the 1600s, which you can stand inside. Fantastic. And with Love a big those. oak beam and uh, that had just been covered up and hidden in the kitchen, which is behind me, which is a tiny bit later, but still the 1600s. It's, it's got a window tax window, so we know it's you can date it some way, but it's a tiny bit later than the main house. Uh, again, there was a fireplace from the 30s and plaster everywhere. And we took that off and discovered uh, an old bread oven and in a massive fireplace and oak beams and plaster. And uh, so that's been a that's been a, something that's something I write about on my own website when I'm not talking about uh, the uh, insanity of lockdown, uh, particularly insane here in Wales, uh, because England is literally 50 yards away from me. Is it? That's. I was going to ask you yeah. about this because look, I, I'm. I'm very sold on. Uh, I, look, I used to go to Wales with my family for a period of about fifteen years, and there was a spot I used to go to, which was one of my favourite places on earth. It was just fantastic. Every time we went back there, we went there often. It was just paradise, and we'd go swimming in the Wye. We'd go climbing up the hills. So I'm very sold on Wales. Um, on on parts of Wales anyway. But you have a massive problem and you know what that problem is. I mean, you're living in a kind of communist state. I mean, you're a, a, a country that makes makes even Boris Johnson's fascist Britain look, look, look authoritarian. You've got, um, I mean, look, look liberal rather. You've got Mark Drakeford, Drakeford a, a Marxist supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, who is your, your little um, pound shop dictator running 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 yep. wales it, it, playing playing the same game that that um the cranky woman does in scotland whereby you know however draconian the the westminster government's restrictions we can beat them we can we uh, well i suppose drakeford the classic example was when not only did, 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 did he put you in lockdown but he he he, he twisted the knife by making sure that when you went to the supermarket only only designated essentials were, were available on the shelves and that you actually had supermarket racks covered with with um, cloth or whatever to, to keep anyone away from buying anything non-essential. Have, have I got it right? I mean, it, it was is... a, 
you have, it was a fundamental misunderstanding of economics. Is, is that he was arguing that we've closed the non-essential shops uh, and therefore uh, in order to make sure that they are still, in, that it's somehow fair, we are going to stop Tesco's selling items sold in non-essential stores. Now, the impact of that was twofold. One, uh, as I live, I mean, the, the, the border with England is the River Dee, so I can't, it's not quite 50 yards for me to travel, although it's 50 yards as the crow flies from, my, from where we are now. Um, but I could just drive along the road and go to England to do things. But actually what most people did was they bought things off Amazon. Mark Drakeford has got to be Amazon's favourite man on this planet because everyone buys off Amazon. Yeah. And so it was ridiculous. I found myself in this, uh, my computer broke. And I, you know, I'm a journalist, so I need a computer. And because computers are non-essential items, computer stores in Wales were closed. But it's illegal for me to go to England. So I had to break the law to travel a mile and a half, going up the road, across the bridge, to a bloke on the other side, to mend my computer, uh, because that was the, I was forced into doing it. And these things were just insanity. My, my son's at nursery in England, so he was there all the time. The poor kids uh, who are his age, four, and have decided they go to preschool in Wales, they get cooped up with their parents. And what's the logic in it? It was just insanity. How, how on earth have you managed to rig it? Because, I mean, I, that, I would have thought that was the, one of the reasons for not living in Wales, that you are subject to their appalling healthcare system and their appalling education system. So how, how have you managed to get out of that? How you, given you live in Wales, how do you wangle it? Um, well, uh, I, I, it's a lovely place to live. Uh, the healthcare, uh, my wife had a baby in uh, November and uh, the baby was born in England. Uh, we had her born, she was born in Chester. Yeah. Um, so that is the way you get around that. Uh, my son will go to school in Wales next year and he will start, assuming they're open by then, and he'll start learning Welsh as a second language. Yeah. And uh, that's great because, well, you know, he's a very good looking boy. Uh, and uh, uh, so in about 20 years time, they, he'll just go along to BBC Wales and say, look, I can speak Welsh. Uh, I, my mother was a, a person of colour, so I tick both the boxes. I'm good looking. How about you give me 300 grand to read an auto cue? Sure. Yeah, that's a good idea. And he'll also be able to read the Mabinogian, won't he, in the original, <laughs> with luck. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure he'll be able to do that. As long as he can say, you know, North Star at the end of the thing. He's in. He's fine. Uh, actually, you know, I take a different view, I suspect, from you on Wales, which is, and I've written about it, I, I take a schizophrenic view. Yeah. Um, I, I agree that the idea of, uh, you know, an independent Wales is, is crazy. Uh, Wales, like Scotland, they are subsidy junkies. They're sucking at the English teat. But what we have to accept is that there is a sense of resentment here. And it's rather like Quebec in Canada that, you know, the more money you throw at them, the more they still say, oh, we, you know, we're exploited. This is jolly unfair. The, the, and, and here it's, you know, the bloody English, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Edward I, whatever. They can't, they'll carry on being that. And the, it doesn't matter how much money is thrown at England or Scotland. There is this resentment and there is a feeling that they are both poorer than England, that it is the English to blame. And whether it's, 
the Boris Johnson or whether it's Mrs Thatcher cl closing down those coal mines with no coal in them, something Uncle Chris was also very good on, or whether it's, you know, wicked industrialists exploiting them in the 19th century. There is that resentment. It is growing and it won't be fixed. Uh, and I, I just take the view that it, it's like a bad marriage. It's just because the union has become a bad marriage, uh, both in Scotland and England. And what we should say is, fine, let's end the marriage. And, uh, you know, it's a, we're, not, we're not going to do, a, you know, a meal ticket for life divorce settlement. So it's a, it's a clean break. You can keep, uh, you know, Scotland and Wales and you're on your own. And only by doing that are we going to be able to be good neighbours. Otherwise, there's just going to be a growing sense of resentment. Yeah, that ain't going to happen, though, is it? I mean, look, you know, in my 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 fantasy, in my fantasy would be an independent Wales and an independent Scotland, and they'd be like, I don't know, they'd be like the Hong Kong of of our island, and they'd be a bit a bit like you've got. Texas and Florida showing showing why free markets work and why California doesn't work, and then you'd have. But that's 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 the that, when you see the Scottish politicians, they go to uh, 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 Latvia and Lithuania and say, "Look, it's perfectly possible for a small country to thrive." Mm. But what they forget is that Latvia and Lithuania survive because they have a small government, they have low tax rates. And they encourage people to set up innovative Bitcoin businesses. Uh, and the the, 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 the the policies that the SMP implied Cymru uh, uh, advocate are more like sort of Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm sure there will be an element of people having to choose which of their pets they eat if Scotland or Wales gets independent. But it, it's got to go through that process. Ireland was much, much poorer. The Republic of Ireland was much, much poorer for an awfully long time after uh, 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 it gained independence from Britain. Uh, it was you know, a very poor backwater. But it, uh, and for a long time, they were sort of blaming the Brits and maybe becoming a republic in 1948. You blame them a little bit less, but there's still a blame. But eventually you grow up and Ireland has prospered. What? Uh, you know, from oh, the 80s on. onwards, it prospered. But from the 80s, okay. I mean, that's a fairly your definition of prosperity, okay, is is very much um, monetary, I suppose. And it's got you know, Irish culture has been destroyed. You go to Dublin now and you get no sense whatever whatsoever that this was probably the cultural capital of Europe for a period. You know, you've got Wilde, you've got Singh, you've got Yeats, you've got all these fantastic writers. And in fact, going back to people like Lawrence Stern and um, um, Jonathan Swift. Bram Stoker. Yeah, Bram Stoker. Yes. Yeah. Just oh. fantastic. Ireland is a, a cultural desert now. It's been destroyed. And I feel so sorry for the Irish. I, I know there are Irish people who are going to be watching this and thinking, yeah, what's happened to our country? It's awful. Uh, so I don't, think, I don't think you can really cite Ireland as an example of... of how a how a, a, a country achieves independence and then then um, that enters a sort of new but period of efflorescence. But but we come back to where we were in northern Greece fifteen minutes ago. Yeah. It is all very well for you and I to say to the people of Ireland, actually, you should be reading some Yeats and uh, you should be appreciating Oscar Wilde in all sorts of ways. Uh, but what? 
made the Irish in, in, during those boom years so happy was that they could go out and there were all these sort of you know, grossly overpriced restaurants. But Dublin was a buzzing city. People wanted to be there. And yeah, but, I but not anymore though. that it was vulgar and tacky and horrible. And it wasn't, uh, 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 you know, the, the, what my father would have called the old country in any way. It was, it, was, it, was, it was brash and unpleasant. But the people wanted it, just as the people of tiny little villages in the Pindus Mountains of northern Greece, what they want is a car which will allow them to drive to uh, 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 the brothel in Yanina. What they want is all to have television. What they want is not to be drinking local red wine from the village, but to be able to have cheap Scotch whiskey. That's what they want. And how are we to, how are we to deny them that? Paddy Lee Firma writes about this about Greece uh, in a different era, about you know, how we visit and, and we sort of bemoan the loss of an old culture in an old way. But that's not how most people in the country feel. Yeah, I, look, I, I mean, I, I, I accept, I'm halfway to accepting your argument and, I, and, and I've had similar experiences. When I, when I, a few years ago, I went to what was billed as the remotest, the remotest um, lodge, in game lodge in Africa. And I had to fly in a small aircraft, a light aircraft, which actually now I know, now I know how many people die in light aircraft accidents in Africa. I'm, I'm sort of I'm not saying I want to do very often, but I flew out. It was, it was right on the Angolan border. It was in Namibia and it was amazing. And I met one of the kind of the more pristine tribes of Africa, the Himba. The Himba still, yeah, unlike the Maasai, who are basically a sort of tourist attraction now in, in Kenya. Um, the, the, the Himba are still fairly recognizably a, a sort of remote African tribe. But even then, they were starting to wear Western shorts and things and T-shirts and, and, and things because that's for them, is it, it's cool. They don't want to dress fuddy-duddy clothes. That's like, what they like, want. Yeah, yeah. That's what they want. And, yeah, we, so, and we, may, we may regret the passing of the old world, but we're not in a position to do that. So, so, um, so, yeah, okay. Look, but, but, but meet me halfway here. Um, Dublin is a complete shithole. It's, 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 it's lost all its personality. It is unrecognised. It is indistinguishable from any trashy Euro city. And the people of Ireland have lost an enormous amount in, 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 in the process. They've lost, they've, they've become utterly deracinated. There's no sense of Irishness anymore. It's a, it's a, there's a sort of fake Irishness of the, the songs in the, in, uh, they sing, you know, the kind of rebel songs they sing in bars in the drunken tourist district, which is very unrecognisably, apart from the rebel songs, no, it's I, completely I, unlike I, I, I don't, I don't just, and, I do and not wait, disagree wait, with you at all. They've got, they've got a government which is about as, it's so woke, it makes Justin Trudeau look like Margaret Thatcher. And he is imposing on them this, this plan, which I don't believe many Irish people do want, which is this mass immigration thing, where they are dumping um, lots of uh, imported immigrants on Irish villages. Well, that is not Ireland, Ireland forging a destiny that its people want. That is about a capture by a narrow elite, a narrow woke elite imposing this vision in a bit, in much the same way that Boris is in currently imposing this green revolution on Britain that none of the people who voted for Boris really wanted. That is scary. 
And I, that doesn't relate the, to what of, you say about... There are people who wanted it, but it's, it's also, of course, it's, as we've seen in Texas and Germany, with the solar panels covered by snow and the wind turbines frozen up, it doesn't work. It's hugely mm. expensive. But they're having blackouts in Germany. The French are being told they've got to phase having their evening meal because of the power shortage. The Green Revolution doesn't work. It's insanity. It will make a small number of people very rich. And, you know, I see this in the stock market in my work. You see that there are bubbles, uh, uh, horrible bubbles developing. One of them is solar energy. It will make uh, a small number of people very rich uh, and it won't work. That, that's that's the, the happiest thing you've said so far. I mean, I would like the solar industry to be like the South Sea bubble. I want to see people absolutely losing their shirt. The problem is that I suspect a lot of the, the people who lose their shirts will be the pension funds and, and things like that who've been have been told that this thing is a surefire bet. And um, who is who is investing in the people, solar? The people who will lose their shirt will be private investors who always get in at the top. Um, there will be some uh, uh, funds that will do badly. Um, which will be undoubtedly be the one having your pension in it. Yes. Um, and but generally, uh, the, the, the smart, the smart, the smart money will have been out. Uh, the real bubble at the moment is in cannabis stocks in London. Just absolute, total insanity. Total oh, insanity. I thought that bubble had burst a while ago. Is it still? Is it still inflating? The bubble burst in North America, but yeah. in the UK, we weren't allowed to have any cannabis stocks listed. Uh, one uh, did list, but it did so by doing a reverse takeover without actually doing any of the documentation. And the FCA is so spineless and useless, they did nothing about it. Uh, that company is called Zoetic, and it's a total fraud. It's got no money. Uh, it's got annualized revenues of 100,000 quid. It's systematically lied to investors, regulators, uh, and consumers. Uh, it's made claims that its products are good for you when they're bad for you. Uh, but it's capitalized at 160 million quid. But that has prompted uh, the FCA have now allowed rules for cannabis companies to get listing. And there are two this week. Uh, um, uh, one of them, there's one which uh, I think closed its fundraising last night. It was trying to raise 8 million quid on a 20 million valuation. It has no products. It is trying to develop a product and it might just launch one later this year. Uh, it's got a whole load of city spivs behind it. They persuaded David Beckham to put in a bit of money for cheap pre-IPO shares. Almost certainly he'll be given a lot more money back for marketing their crap products if they ever launch. They tried to raise 8 million quid as at last night. They have had £70 million offered to them. No. Yeah. Now, that's very there interesting. One that, there, is one, there is one that floated earlier this week. It raised £4 million, It's got 4 or £5 million in the bank. Um, and its shares have gone through the roof since it listed. Needless to say, it also has got no products launched. Uh, it might do some test launches this year. It'll probably run out of money within two years. Its shares have gone up by about 10 times since it listed on Tuesday, and it's now valued at 70 million quid. What do you think? It's about... sheer, sheer insanity. I've got an idea, Tom. Um, Dellingfrith. You, you want to float a company with me? Delling, yeah? Dellingfrith, Dellingfrith Cannabis. Uh, or De oh, what would it be called? Dellingfrith. What's the sexy way of, 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 of saying cannabis without saying CBD. Yeah. CBD. 
Dellingfrith CBD or, or, or Winnipeg, if you'd rather. I mean, um, <laughs> well, there's more chance of more chance of Dellingpole CBD than CBE, I suspect, because you're not part of the media establishment. And this is one of the interesting things about the David Beckham linked one is that uh, the, it, showing the corruption of my part of the financial press. They gave the scoop to Sky News, which then talked it up and said Beckham, they quoted Beckham's macroeconomic thoughts on why cannabis is the place to invest. That's rather like asking you to give a comment on whether Man United should play 442 or 533 or 532. It's just utterly insane. That is a very that's good been analogy. Used to pump up the excitement, and uh, it's uh, the shares have gone. Uh, will go through the roof. That's fantastic. that's that's a bubble at the moment. But if you if you point out that you know the people behind this are dirty, filthy city spivs, if you point out that the maths are crazy, no one really cares. That's interesting. Now, the, the various questions I want to ask you about this. Um, you you seem to specialize in in pointing out companies which are basically crooked, which yes. is a which is a very brave thing to do, isn't it? Given given how much money would the, these these companies have available to them, at least before they go bust, don't they have the ability to recruit all manner of expensive lawyers and and to be able to? How do you protect yourself? Well, uh, you're right. I, I do. I specialise in in taking down frauds. Uh, and so, you know, I've been condemned, uh, not condemned, I'm condemned for it, but I've been commended for it. The uh, FRC, the accounting watchdog, has said that it widened its scope into Quindell, which was one of the biggest frauds of the past decade, a three billion fraud, because of my work. I wrote to them and pointed things out. Uh, the FCA have commended me over, uh, you know, sent me saying, thank you very much for your work on Zoetic and another company whose shares I've managed to get suspended because it's a fraud. Uh, and Panorama, when they did the thing on Neil Woodford, came up to the house in Wales and interviewed me at length. Because we're going we're to talk a, about over a thousand. Okay, but uh, yeah, the answer is uh, initially um, when I started this phase of my life. When I, the first fraud I exposed was in 1993. Um, so I've been doing it a while, on and off. But when I started this phase of my life. Um, I used to get quite a lot of lawyers' letters, but uh, I, the way that luckily I, the last phase of my life resulted in me being worth minus 200 grand. So I've set up my finances in a way which make it a little bit difficult to go after me. But I'm also, I don't run things that I can't defend. Uh, so I get lawyers' letters. I used to get a lot of lawyers' letters from people saying, Mr. Winifrith, we want your, you know, you to retract the article and pay our costs. And I always replied, see you in court, bitches. Uh, and uh, one, one company was foolish enough to actually take me up on the challenge. And uh, that was a company called Sefton Resources. And they lied through their teeth. It was a total fraud. Uh, and I, we, we got to the high court. And I was defending myself. But I had a friends who, lawyer friends who helped me along the way. And uh, we would have won. I'm pretty sure we would have won. But luckily, I discovered a reference on the Internet to a court case from 2008 between the CEO and a man who I'd never heard of, a Mr. Gary Dillabow. And I trawled and I trawled and I trawled. And eventually, I got a call 
from Gary Dillabaugh, who'd moved from Colorado to British Columbia, I was a dentist. And he called me when I was sitting in Greece and he explained what the court case was. And at that stage, I thought, I'm in here uh, because the court case showed that the chief executive of this company that was suing me for libel had either committed perjury or had stolen the company's money. And eventually the documents were retrieved from storage and uh, I published them uh, the next day. And um, the, uh, they basically had to fold. The high court judge said, uh, you're gonna have to give up. So I enjoyed that, that was fun. And I, I, I made the point of rubbing the nose of Pinson Masons, their fascist lawyer scumbags in it by going around there and uh, uh, lighting a cigar with a 10 quid note and then taking a glass of champagne in for the lawyer who we'd beaten. And if you stand up to these people, they now know that it's very hard to go after us because we set ourselves up cleverly to avoid, to make it very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and, but also that I will fight you. And most journalists cave. You get a lawyer's letter from some of these scumbags and they cave. Um, it comes as a shock when they get a, a guy saying, See you in court, bitches. And by the way, I'm going to really enjoy the discovery you process. Change. Oh, it's not, it's, not, it's not charging very well, is it? Sorry, Tom, I'm, my, my light is going to give people epileptic fits. So I'm going to try, I mean, try, try these ones for No, we'll try those. Um, it's really pathetic how little the battery lasts for on these, um, on these expensive my expensive lighting equipment that you haven't got you being used right from well but tommy it, it's quite it's, so, so, sorry carry on it is it, 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 so the, the companies these days are um they they're, they're they're not foolish enough to try it on and you know i will go and challenge them i will go to agms and stand up and buy one share in their company in order to go and challenge them and humiliate them in front of their shareholders so i've got no i'm not worried about it um, there was a one case where a company, a Greek fraud, which uh, uh, I was exposing with a friend of mine, um, and uh, I went and doorstepped its headquarters uh, outside Athens, and the security guards tried to seize my camera and I had to be chased away. So the companies do it. What's more interesting is the morons who are invested in these frauds is how they respond. Um, so they respond by... Uh, they send me death threats. Uh, they put uh, uh, tweets out saying, we're going to clean you out in court. I had a, a barrister uh, at a London chambers putting a tweet out the other day saying, oh, I'm going to bankrupt you in court. And then he called me at 11.45 at night. And uh, I said, you, you know, you, you explain things. And he went away. But, you know, he's invested in one of these frauds. Um, I made the mistake of saying that I hated badges and I wanted to block up a set in my house here in Wales. And they went onto the bulletin boards, and chat, private chat rooms, and discussed how they were going to report me to the RSPCA and the Badger Trust. And needless to say, the Badger Trust listened to these goons and said uh, that, uh, you know, you, you realise that you can't do this and uh, we want you to change your article because you've been encouraging people to, uh, uh, um, to, to, to damage badges. And of course, I hadn't said that at all. So I told them to sling their hook and said, I want, you know, I want the, the name of your online manager, pal, because you're harassing me and you're doing it 
at the instigation of people who not only send death threats, they have a discussion a couple of weeks ago about hiring a hitman to have me killed. And uh, they, they agreed that it would cost 20 grand. And then one of the other guys says, yeah, I'll go, I'll, go, I'll, I'll chip in half as long as you allow me to torture him first. Uh, they published my wife's work details and plan to try and get her sacked. Uh, they have a go at my son because he's a mixed race. The whole just, 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 they're just vile. Uh, one of them contacted my ex-wife, uh, uh, this is a few years ago, pretending to be a 13-year-old girl and saying I'd sexually abused her. She was, in fact, a glamour model <laughs> from Manchester, but she happened to own shares in, in Quindell, the fraud. You know, these people are insane, but that's my life. That you you are a very I, I salute you, sir. You're a very brave chat. I mean, you're being you're being you know you're laughing it off, but that sounds terrifying. And you're definitely a chip off the old block, it's aren't much, you? I mean, it's much better. It's much better. It's much better when I'm in Greece. I I, t I tell my neighbours there, and the Marni is a, a place where everyone's got a gun. I'm the only person in my village who doesn't have a gun. So I told my neighbours, uh, you know, what I do, and I showed them one of the death threats, and they go. Uh, this great guy, Nico, the communist in the village, leading communist, my best friend, he says, don't worry, if anyone comes here asking for you, I'll have them killed. And yeah, that's fine. Maybe we should move to Greece. That's very reassuring. Yes, I'd, I'd like some neighbours like that. Um, tell, me, tell me a bit about Quindell. Um, what, what was the deal? What, what, what was the fraud? Uh, every fraud going. I mean, but it also, Quindell was a company set up by a man called Rob Terry. And what is amazing is that this was his third fraud. And it was his third public company fraud. He had done one in uh, 2004 called The Industry Group. That was number two. And he'd managed to get the shares up to 1,200p. At, th at that point, he shorted shares in his own company. Uh, that's selling shares, uh, you know, hoping they go down uh, and made money from that. The whole thing was a fraud. He had bought worthless assets of friends of his for shares, which the friends just sold the, 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 the shares to make an absolute killing. And the assets were totally worthless. But he paid 300 million quid for it. Eventually, that company was bailed out and placing at 5p. So people had bought shares at 12 quid. And they were 5p within years of Terry's departure. That should, but given that he was shorting his own shares, telling lies in public statements, doing fraudulent deals, that should have said, you know, if we had a regulator who weren't totally useless, yes, they would have said, actually, you know, Mr. Terry, you know, we probably were too incompetent to catch you but you're not allowed to float any more companies. So what did he do? He floated another company. And right from the get-go, it's called Quindell. It was a fraud. Uh, so it was an, initially a country club. And then he uh, said that it was doing various sorts of services. And I demonstrated that in its first year as a public company, it reported profits of, forgive me, I can't remember the exact numbers, something like revenues of 5 million and profits of 4 million. And I demonstrated that actually it's all of that was fraud. <laughs> it was just fraud. He had done what's called a Panama pump fraud. Uh, Panama pumps a term invented by my friend, Sam Antar of Crazy Eddies. He was a fraudster, uh, turned fraud buster. And what that was, was that Quindell issued shares to another company 
And then Quindell bought bogus services of other company or sold bogus services to that other company. And that other company sold the shares in the market and paid Quindell the money. So, in fact, Quindell hadn't provided any service to it at all. But he was able to book uh, pro uh, revenues, which is 100% profit, and get the cash in. And it went on from that to do all sorts of other frauds. It was uh, got into the uh, litigation business of uh, uh, helping people sue for whiplash. And then it decided it would go helping people to sue, claiming they got noise-induced industrial deafness. And they booked profits on the assumption that a certain number of cases would settle. But I show very clearly that they were assuming that they would have a market share of something between 150 and 200 percent going forward. And they were booking profits on the basis. It was obviously fantasy. But the accountants just waved it through. So, oh, yeah, they're real profits. OK, there's no cash, um, but they're real profits. Waved it all through. And the company issued vast amounts of money, vast amounts of shares to raise money. And it also bought businesses off mates of Rob Terry, which were totally worthless for hundreds of millions of quid in shares, which those mates then dumped. And those were the same mates from the previous fraud. It also bought a business. Uh, one of those businesses was called Ingenie, whose brand ambassador was Gary Lineker. And Gary Lineker trousered five million from the Quindell fraud. Uh, he didn't. Yeah, he was, he was, oh, he was given free shares in Ingenie, which was bought by Quindell. Those became Quindell shares. He put out a statement saying, well, I wish I could buy some more. And of course he didn't. He sold the lot, trousered the whole lot. Um, Isn't that... And it just went on. That sounds very dodgy. Doesn't doesn't reflect well on the character of Gary Lineker, I would say. I think that's the, the uh, legally safe way of putting it. It reflects very badly on the character of Mr Lineker. But uh, uh, that's what happened. And the, and the company was eventually capitalised at three billion quid. And of course, eventually they did run out of, uh, of other people's money. But along the way, they did, you know, they did crazy things, which I did expose. And uh, Quindell responded, I got two lawyers' letters from them. They also put up a, a post uh, uh, rebutting the blogger, me. Uh, but the post was so panicked, actually it's admitted more in it. Uh, and the post actually allowed us to admit one of their great frauds was uh, they were running out of money. So uh, you know, they were just getting money in from anywhere. So uh, the original country club, which the company was based on, by insurance and a telematics business. That's a fraud. But the original country club was sold to this guy, Jonathan Stretton Knowles, for 1.97 million in, in shares. And it was so small relative to a 3 billion market cap, you didn't need to um, uh, uh, do anything, uh, you didn't need to announce it. But at the same time, Stretton Knowles set up a company which uh, uh, cost him £68.40. It was a dormant shell company. And he sold that to Quindell for £2.4 million in shares. Uh, in, in cash, uh, so, uh, or, you know, in sh or shares, whatever it is. The net effect was that Quindell got £2 million cash by effectively selling shares in the market. Stratton Knowles got the country club, which he eventually sold back to Rob Terry, the fraudster, and he went off to star in Life in Mobs, a reality TV show on Channel 5. But that was just a little fraud, a, a quick two million fraud. All sorts of frauds. It did millions of frauds. The SFO is investigating it. 
but at a glacial pace. But if they don't charge Terry on this one, we can just give up. It's just that that's just saying you can get away with anything. Now, we've, we've got to talk about Neil Woodford because I personally lost money from, from Neil Woodford, I mean, probably in common with most retail investors. I mean, the, the Woodford Fund, was we, it was being touted by all kinds of financial commentators, wasn't it, in the media and by financial advisors. Um, as yeah, this 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 fund is partic- is doing particularly well for our customers, uh, for our clients, and yeah, you might be interested in. T- so tell me, tell me the backgrounds. Did, was was Neil Woodford ever any good? Was he ever yes. ever legit? But he was. He was legit. He he was at um, uh, Invesco, and he was a hero for twenty odd years. And big, he made his name buying shares. Part of it's, it's timing. Is you, you get lucky with timing. So he started in the mid-90s. And his beat was buying shares in boring value investments, companies that make a profit and pay a dividend. Uh, you know, Rolls-Royce, those sort of you know, boring companies. Shell. And in, that's the sort of thing, yeah. yeah. Um, in, the early, in the late... 90s we had the dot-com boom and Woodford for a time looked like a twit as did Warren Buffett because he said this is a load of bollocks which of course it was uh, and so for a couple of years he underperformed but then the dot-com boom exploded and all the other fund managers who'd filled their boots with this fraudulent rubbish looked like chumps and suddenly Woodford was the hero of the day and that made his name and he delivered good returns because companies that pay, make profits and pay dividends will reward you in the end. It's value investing. And in 2008, he also dodged the financials. He thought there was something going to be going wrong. And so he had no exposure to the financials, which crashed in the financial crisis. So he comes out of that looking like a hero. But even by 2010, he's starting to be a bit naughty. And so he, in order to deliver that extra performance, that's called beta, uh, he wanted to beat everybody else. So more money would come in and he'd earn even more money as a fund manager. He started investing in dodgy biotechs and high risk small caps, some of them which were completely bonkers. And I always give an example of the most bonkers was the Wood the Plastic Pallet Company. If you want to go and get some tiles for your thing, you put them on a your mansion, you put them on a wooden pallet, right? That wooden pallet costs you five quid. There is a, just a danger that the uh, uh, gentleman who are tarmacking your neighbour's drive up the road might steal your wooden pallet. If that happens, you say, so what? I'll buy another one. Well, a company called RM2 set up with the idea of having trackable plastic pallets which if it got stolen by the gentleman tarmacking your neighbor's drive, uh, you could trace. And actually, you don't really want to do that because do you want to confront those people tarmacking your neighbor's drives? They're not exactly scholars and gentlemen. So you probably don't want to trace it anyway. And moreover, it cost you 60 quid to buy the pallet. It was clearly an insane, lunatic proposition. But Woodford put more and more money into it. And there were a raft of these things. So this is happening 2011-12, whilst he's still at Invesco. The day after he leaves Invesco, uh, it is fined by the FCA for about 30 breaches of the rules. Woodford had been having... 
few big stakes in companies, stakes which are too big. Uh, he shouldn't have had that many shares. He was having too much of his fund in unlisted investments, all the sort of illiquid liquidity issues. Uh, a unit trust, you know, if you want to sell your units, you can do it and you get the cash back the next day. If the fund can't raise that money because it's invested in private companies or rubbish companies, it faces a liquidity crunch. Woodford was playing fast and loose with the rules before he left Invesco. The day he leaves, he's fine. Now, again, if the British regulator was, wasn't so bloody useless, they would have said, what's the point of finding Invesco? Because it's just a big, rich fund management house. You should be finding the individual. Fraud or wrongdoing is done by individuals. So they should have been finding Woodford a fortune and saying, by the way, you're a naughty boy. You can never work in fund management again. They didn't. He was allowed to launch his own firm. He launched two unit trusts and a investment trust and got mandates to manage other people's money. And he was, he, he had smoke blown up his ass by the entire mainstream media. You know, they're all, uh, they, they are today all saying, oh, that Woodford, he was a bad man. And here are some of the warning signals people should have spotted. From 2015 onwards, we ran a thousand, more than a thousand, articles, podcasts, and videos. I did a talk at an investor show in front of a thousand people explaining some of the things that Woodford was up to. He was cheating on the valuations of stocks within his fund, putting in valuations that weren't true of private companies. That took, increased the value of his fund short term, meant that he earned more in management fees but ultimately, the valuations were a joke. And in the end, these companies run out of money and their values crashed. So he put money in at the wrong level, but he'd made money out of it personally. People like you had lost money. Yeah. And he was doing all sorts of other fiddles. We were saying this from 2015 onwards. The Deadwood Press was useless. And there are two reasons for that. One, there are a lot of very stupid people in the Deadwood Press. If you get jobs because they know someone, uh, you know, their dad was at Oxford with someone else's dad. So there's some dim people. But it's the real issue is the corruption of the Deadwood Press is they don't dare uh, be nasty to people because you might piss off a powerful PR firm. It's much, much simpler just to do what the PR firms say. They give you your scoops. And, and that's the way it works. And you know, I've done it. I've worked on the Evening Standard and I've sat there uh, and I recounted this the other day, two episodes. I sat there one morning and a chap, a director of the biggest financial PR firm, walked to the office with a press release and stood behind my back as I wrote the article. And he said, oh, you can just change that bit there. Can you just change that? And I thought, what the hell? And I, I complained and I was told, don't you dare complain. Because that's the way we do it. If we don't do that, they won't, they won't make our lives easy. And a bit later, I was investigating an insider dealing affair, the Carradine affair, involving the chairman of a PR firm, uh, Tony Knox of Financial Dynamics. He's dead now, so he can't sue us. Uh, and Schroeder's investment management. And in the end, Knox got sidelined and two folks at Schroeder's got fired because of my work. Uh, but I wanted to go on because it was bigger than that. And uh, then a whole load of senior staff from Financial Dynamics walks into the office of the Evening Standard, go into a meeting with the city editor and a couple of other people. 
senior staffers and the people looking at me and I'm saying, I'm thinking, Christ, what's this about? At the end, I'm summoned in and I say, you're not going to write about this anymore. I go, why? I go, well, you're not. That's it. And the deal was, it was obvious, was they were told, if you carry on writing about it, no more soft stories, no more scoops. We're going to make your life difficult. Uh, or alternatively, you get him off this case uh, and we're going to give you some nice scoopettes. And that's the way the financial press operate. The, you know, the biggest supporters of Neil Woodford was the Mail on Sunday. Uh, if you look at it now, you'll see Jeff Prestridge, a man known as Jeff Prestridge in our industry, uh, uh, saying what a bad man Woodford was. Jeff Prestridge has made his career blowing off Woodford. He gets exclusive interviews and in return has said nice things about him. The Mail on Sunday was saying that the Woodford funds were a buy the day before they were finally gated. So they were, they were the last rats on the ship. They were right. still loyal. And that's because they were always given the scoops. Neil so, Woodford's buying into this company. Here's so an exclusive interview with the great man. These are the kind of people that are responsible for me losing 2,000 quid of my ISA investment. Um, because, yeah, yeah I mean... It's, it's, did you, it, why did you buy it, James? Well, because I... So many people in the media... I mean, this was, this was before... I came to completely distrust the mainstream media. Um, you know, I was halfway there to getting it, but I didn't. And I just thought, um, I've heard of this guy. All these people would not be talking about him if he weren't good. I mean, because obviously, imagine if you were a journalist and you were bigging up somebody that you knew to be, uh, have skeletons in his cupboard. I mean, you, you wouldn't do that, would you? Because journalists have integrity. Or, or so much. I mean, it's, 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 it's worse than that. Now, I think everyone accepts Neil Woodford's a rotter, but the guy's planning a comeback. Mm. It may be scuffed by the fact the FCA is finally investigating him. This news was broken by the Sunday Telegraph last week, and they did it with an absolutely enormous interview where Woodford um, basically portrayed himself as the victim of what happened. He said, I had to sell my 30 million quid house because my fund management business went down. Well, that's just not true. But there was no question about it. Yes, he might have had to sell it. But 25 years at Invesco, he would have made 30 million out of that. And we know that he took dividends after tax of at least 37 million out of Woodford Investment Management in four years. The idea he had to sell his house because of it going down is just a lie. But the Telegraph didn't challenge that and allows him to paint himself as the victim, to blame everyone else for what went wrong, say, oh, I've learned some lessons from this, and, you know, let's go again. And that's corrupt journalism. The Telegraph got the scoop. They got an exclusive interview with Woodford, and in return for that, they agreed that they wouldn't challenge him when he told blatant lies, um, which he did. And that's the way journalism runs. And you would have thought after all the opprobrium heaped on Neil Woodford since the collapse, that journalists would have some shame, but they don't. And you, so you know it, and you know it from the political world. If you expose the fact that you know your local Tory MP is in a relationship with a goat, the central office will have words and say, actually, you know, you're not going to get the scoops anymore. You will be so there is a cozy the way that the expenses were hushed up for years. It's the same corruption. The other corruption, of course, is 
I look at those folks who were in financial journalism with me 20 years ago, and the two or three left in financial journalism, all the others have gone into PR. And you don't get a well-paid job in PR unless you brown nose. And it's the same with the political journalists. If you brown nose enough, you get a job, I don't know, working spinning for Boris or whatever. That's the game. And so it's totally corrupt, yes. It's very true that, actually. I've, I've looked at... I mean, I think there comes a point in many journalists' careers where we realise we, <laughs> we look at those of our contemporaries, our university contemporaries who went into more um, respectable professions like the law or, or the city. Prostitution, or drug dealing, yeah, prostitution, drug dealing. journalism. And we, and we think, hang on a second, I'm, I'm now considered to be expendable because I'm old or whatever, uh, and I really need to find a new career path. And you look around at these, these PR companies that, that where they always wear these immaculately cut suits, and they're obviously, they have fantastic expense accounts. When I, I got a taste of this briefly when I had um, dealings with Tim Bell's company, whatever it was called, Bell Pottinger. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you just just thought, wow, this is... And they're so smooth and they're so... And what you don't realise is that the terrible price they pay for this is that they throw all their morals out of the window. They have no self-respect. They have no decency. They, they have to be ready for phone calls at 3 a.m. from their disgusting, depraved client who wants them to, you know, to, who expects them to... Uh, to give their grandmother's blood for the, for, for, you know, at the top of a hat. Um, and uh, yeah, so they've got no, they've got no conscience. They have no lives of their own, but they get very well paid. So I can see, yeah. They get I can an see absolute that. fortune. And, uh, but I, you know, I'm un- unemployable. You're unemployable because totally. a, people know you wouldn't do that. And B, you haven't spent the past 20 years brown nosing these people by running the, the lies they want you to run. Uh, couldn't so, do it. Yeah, it's Uncle Chris couldn't have done it. Um, uh, 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 you, you know, he, the idea that you have to write what a PR person tells you is just appalling. Um, but that's what, the, that's what journalists do. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's... It's quite interesting, isn't it? That- and we see, but it's also, it's also, you know, we see that, I think, you know, that, well, I, I despair more of our profession um, and we could go on to lockdown because there is what Uncle Chris talked about. I'm sure Uncle Chris would have been with you and me on lockdown. Yes. The group think that the entire political and media class um, think has won. And so you and I may say, well, you know, if, if you're really worried about COVID, what we could have done is told people over 70 and people who are morbidly obese to shield and the rest of us get on with our lives and the economy wouldn't have been ruined and they might have postponed death by a couple of months. Um, and we could have done that. And, and you know, now we're sitting here and it is clear that if you look at the falling death rates in Sweden, the falling death rates here, they're falling faster in Sweden, where they haven't had such a lockdown they are here. But also, the, the death rates amongst old fogies are falling far faster than death rates amongst young people. So the vaccines, you know, probably do work. You and I have been vaccinated by God. We've both had COVID and survived. Mm. And, but the vaccines will probably work. So 
why the hell are we you know talking about having a lockdown forever the lockdown's not achieved anything but if you, you can't say that I mean, the idea that the bbc might have us on talking about that is ludicrous well, yes. I'm not sure I agree with you that the vaccines do work, actually. I think that they, they don't even do what they're supposed to do, which is to, to protect you from catching it or, or, or stop you transmitting it, it seems to me. Because if they did do that, we wouldn't be talking about having any more lockdowns or any of this mask nonsense. I mean, not that, not that either of those work. Well, but but, the, but the, they can't admit the, you know, the possibility that the masks didn't stop the spread. And no, they no. can't admit the possibility, I mean, especially here in Wales, uh, God knows how many lockdowns or fire breaks we've had. Yeah. And uh, we've had all these extra ones. And, and we seem to be sort of, we've been the COVID hotspot of Europe. And so it, it's, any rational person would say that lockdowns haven't worked at all. And these masks and what is causing numbers to go down is that more people are vaccinated by Pfizer. And 10 million of us have been vaccinated by God. And uh, it's getting warmer. And this is when the flu season normally goes down and it just seems common sense but you know the media won't dare say that because they're all in this horrible group thing they are and i'm sure chris would have said that i think he i think he would have done i think he would have done just knowing everything i know i know about him and our conversations and his his understanding of how the world works and particularly as you say about groupthink he would have recognized instantly what's going on he, he would have been curious as well he would have for example, I think he would have paid a lot of attention to um, names, names left my head for a moment. The, the American guy who's pointed out how the CCP effectively promoted um, the whole idea of lockdown, that lockdown comes from Xi Jinping. It's his baby. And, and the Chinese propaganda units persuaded the West to the gullible West to, to go for it. I mean, there were so many... There were so many... they persuaded us to close all our coal-fired fire stations to stop global warming. Exactly. Well, that's that's another reason he would have been onto this um, like a rat up a drain pipe, because he would have known that, that the whole green scare was the precursor to the fake COVID pandemic he, he would have because it's 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 originates in the same in the same um group group think you know the uh, the uh technocracy and the trilateral commission and so on they've been planning this for years sustainability it, it's it's all part of the same agenda so he would have he would have totally got that i just um i when i when i first started becoming really friendly with um with your uncle i remember looking at him and thinking I really admire you and you are a total hero, but I wouldn't want to be like you because I can see that even though you're probably the greatest journalist of your generation, you've been marginalized, you know, you're not appreciated as you ought to be by the mainstream and stuff. And here I am now, now the mighty Booker is no longer with us. And I realized that, you know, I'm not fit to walk in his shoes, but, Essentially, that's what, where my career has gone as well, and I have become the thing I, I, I feared that I would I would become. I've, and, and I think it's the same with you, Tom. I think we have to accept that we have become marginalised outsiders, sort of adored by a few, but rejected as loons by the many. Is that fair? Yeah, I, it is, but it's, I, 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 there was an article. Yeah, I'm sure you have exactly the same thing. Is you write an article and you think. 
I am really pissed off. I, I have my dad who died in the autumn as well. Um, but it would be more Chris because dad was a you know a scholar, not a journalist. Um, but it would have been, I really would have loved to have read that to Chris. Um, and so the article, I did an article this week on uh, Peel Street in Wrexham. The English government has spent 170 grand uh, 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 listing all the racist streets and statues and buildings <laughs> in Wales. And uh, obviously, you know, there are things like, you know, that alt-right freak, Lord Nelson, and, uh, and, and Wellington, they're obvious ones. So there's Peel Street in my local town in Wrexham. And they're, they're, these, they spent 170 grand on getting these experts. And the experts say Peel Street is problematical. We can't say whether it's linked to slavery, but it might be. Now, the reason that you, I'm sure, know there are, there are a number of Robert Peels, but there are two main ones. Robert Peel, the elder, who didn't own slaves, but supported slavery because he was... He was one of only 10 millionaires in Britain in 1800. He was an industrialist. He depended on it. He wasn't a total rotter. He actually pushed through pioneering legislation on uh, improving the condition of child workers. But he was a fairly undistinguished parliamentarian. His son was very distinguished and was a lifelong abolitionist. Uh, and uh, But why do we... And it's far more distinguished. So the odds are if there is a Peel Street near you, it's the sun. But what Chris would have enjoyed is that the neighbouring streets to Peel Street in Wrexham are Villiers Street, Cobden Street and Bright Street. Now, James, what do those three men have in common? Well, Cobden um, was was sort of what was of our party, wasn't he? I mean, he was um, the, into the... What, Okay, the, 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 I will, I'll put you out of misery. Those three men were the leading people wanting to abolish the Corn Laws. And Peel sacrificed his political career to abolish the Corn yes, Laws. Yes, yes. He's, he's he one of my heroes for that. that. Therefore, it is obvious, obvious that, that that street is named after Peel the Younger, who actually not only was he an abolitionist, but as prime minister, he set up the North Atlantic fleet, which sailed into New York Harbor with three captured American slaving vessels and was the scourge of the slavers. And he is prime minister. He signed treaties which got other countries to ab abolish slavery. And he was in the government which uh, ended slavery in the British Empire. He was a passionate anti-slaver. But the Welsh government are so bloody stupid and their experts like all experts are so bloody stupid they can't work it out and chris would have worked it out running that article what does it achieve for me nothing um you know it, it, it earns a teeny weeny bit of money but it doesn't really achieve. but i'm really happy that i've done it i'm very proud of it and when the welsh government says this report will help teach our children about the unfortunate links with some street names i hope that when my four-year-old is taught that Peel Street in Wrexham is linked to the slave trade, he'll be able to wave a piece of paper and say, this is why you're talking rubbish, teacher. Um, and Uncle Chris had the same thing. He, he said in his, you know, we discussed, do you think you've achieved much with your campaigns? And some of them, yes, he did. 
Uh, he, he was. It, there are a whole load of Brexiteers who wouldn't have been Brexiteers without Chris. Uh, his work on the way that social services departments stole children uh, and put them through secret courts, that was very good. Now, you know, I see The Guardian's doing it now and claiming it's groundbreaking. Uh, typical lies from The Guardian. Chris was doing that 10 years ago. Yeah. And Chris was in his late 70s threatened with prison by a judge uh, for trying to stop this in one of these cases and for writing about it. And I think it was Alistair Campbell's brother-in-law got him off. But that I can admire as a journalist, that in your late 70s, most of them have given up the ghost. And he's prepared to go to court and say, send me to prison if I lose and fight it and win. Um, and that's heroic journalism. But totally. he did achieve little things. But in, in the end, in the end, he was there, you know, lying on his deathbed. Uh, and he saw various people like you and me in the last few days and weeks. And then that last night he spent there with uh, his wife and his two sons in the room. And he's provided a great financial platform for them. His wife doesn't have to worry about money. Uh, he gave her an awful lot of joy. He gave his sons a lot of joy. And that's rather more important, uh, isn't it, than uh, whether you... Uh, Founded private side or didn't? I I, I totally agree. And, and and by the way, I wasn't I I hope I wasn't sounding querulous in any way. I mean, I I was just merely observing rather than whining. I I would never want my my lot or my career to be any other way. I I would never want to be any other kind of journalist. And I'm sure you'd be the same. I mean, the pursuit of the truth is the most important thing. And and we're representing all those people who. Well, who need us to tell the truth when nobody else is? That we are doing that. Uh, and also, I hope, you know, some days you write and some days there are days I, I don't really want to write. And I, just, uh, I end up doing the bare minimum and uh, going and chopping logs or trying to plant a new tree in my orchard or something like that. But most days I actually enjoy my writing and I hope that I can be like Chris. And he did enjoy writing things, certain things. Some of it was a, uh, was a drag enjoyed writing certain things right up to the end. You got satisfaction from some things. And if you can do that, and if you can provide for your family, um, and you, uh, you know, can get some goats and annoy the neighbours, and hopefully the goats kill your badges, don't say that, I'll be arrested. You, you know, that's fine. That's fine. I can live with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to end it there. Uh, you, know, you, would, you would feel rotten if you were a toady at the Daily Telegraph, and and they uh, and and they said no, James. I'm sorry because sooner or later, Chris. They tried to get rid of him they did. several times. I mean, you know, I, gosh, I hate the Telegraph, it's an appalling paper. And so is the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, Chris cancelled his subscription to Daily Telegraph two years before he died uh, because it was a, it was a tread, truly dreadful. Rag. And imagine if he saw uh, it now. He much time. Oh yeah, he'd be uh, he would be truly ashamed to be there and. I know that his son and I quite often tried, urged him to resign and go and set up a website like Mark Stain because he would have easily made enough money to do it. But he was of that era when he thought, you know, you should be in, in a newspaper. But they treated him appallingly. They wanted him out. And that's the problem is if you went to go and work for a newspaper, uh, you'd have a ch change of editor and they say, actually, we don't like your face, James. Or, you know, what you, know, what you said about that? the... Um, you, 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 or you, you know, you, you refuse to accept that uh, 
that uh, Joe Biden is a towering intellect and the rightful president of America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you, something like that would happen and you'd be fired. Um, and so people don't want that to happen to them. So they just toe the line. And so they say to the Daily Cross editors, yes, of course, yes, of course, it was a lance for Biden. And oh, there was no cheating. And so what if the, you know, the, there was censorship of all those nasty stories? About it? We won't talk about the censorship of the Hunter Biden stories. We'll just let it go on. And that's what these people do, because they just want to say they work for a prestigious paper yeah. and have enough money uh, to, you know, to pay for, for the wife and brats. Yeah. A phrase which would get me sacked from the Daily Telegraph for using it. But that's what they do. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I'm afraid to say. Listen, I think we're going to have to do another podcast at some stage because we, we, we were only just sure. warming up in our attack on the media. And I think that you and I have got so much more to say on this subject. And the only reason I'm, I'm cutting it short now is a, I know that you've got um, a, uh, your, your son to go and see and B, I think it's time for my second cup of tea of the afternoon. And I haven't done any, um, any journalistic work. I hope you appreciate my, my mug. Can you I, see I totally agree with that sentiment. Defund the BBC. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll 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 have another mug with another suitable sentiment at the next video. Thanks I very might, much for the chat. I might nick that. When did you write the story about Wrexham and about the about Peel and stuff? Uh, two or three days ago. It's quite a good story. Um, has it been done elsewhere? It's on, it's on, no. It's on. To, uh, I, I've, well, there were local papers still running it as a problematical issue, but it's Fantastic. on TomWinifred.com. If you want to use any of the material on it, there. Um, I'm having a I'm having a good good week with this sort of nonsense. I might so have, feel free. This is how journalism works, isn't it? Okay, all right. That is. Oh, and and, okay. um, and may I say to all listeners, viewers, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to support me on Patreon or subscribe star because I, I can't do this stuff just out of my goodwill even though I am a goodwill person and um, check out Tom's Tom's website too. I'll put the details below, and you can find out from him interalia. What companies not to invest in? Um, thank you, Tom. It's been great. Pleasure. We'll see you soon. Bye bye. bye.